Good morning. How are you? This is why the table was low, Chad. I wanted to sit sometimes. Okay. Should I change my mic, Bo? Okay. You talk amongst yourselves. Check. How's that? Okay. Well, my name is Ryan Grable. If you're new, I think I've met some of you who are new. I want to welcome you guys to Soundhouse Church. Man, it's a beautiful day. I know it's a holiday weekend. I'm just so glad that you guys are here and jumping in with us uh, in the book of Luke. We began this book a couple weeks ago, and we are teaching this book all through to Easter. Luke, if you go back and listen to last week, you can hear a little bit of the history of Luke, who he was, um, why he is such a significant gospel writer, uh, the way he arranges the book and his mission. We're going to start to build off of last week because there's this big announcement that he makes, this, uh, uh, that Jesus makes when he reads the mission of the Messiah. And you can go back and read that in chapter 4. And it, it frames out the work of Christ and who he is and who he's come to, to bring salvation, um, or at least his focus generally. And so uh, it, it's such a great uh, moment. Um, the, the, the synagogue of which he grew up in, uh, let's just say it didn't fall on kind ears. And so they didn't appreciate what Jesus was speaking about. And they then ended up trying to kill Jesus. So it was like one of those moments when I read it. You know, when you read scripture, you can kind of relate to it a little bit. I thought, can you imagine like what his family must have felt when it's like our hometown hero is here to speak. It's her son, Mary, brothers and sisters going like, hey, that's my bro. Until he says something that offends everyone in there, apparently. And then next thing you know, they're watching them try to kill they're, they're the people who Jesus grew up with, trying to kill him. What a horrible, horrific moment. But it's a moment where Jesus, of course, escapes and then begins to continue to minister, which we'll pick up in chapter 4. But let's pray before we get started. God, we thank you so much for your love, your mercy, your grace. We thank you that, God, that throughout our life we've been shown so much grace so much mercy. We've experienced your divine forgiveness and grace. And God, I ask that you just help us to just fight the mentality and the urge to other people. To just put people in a category. To put people separate from us. But God, as we look at Jesus' life from that announcement that we talked about last week to now. We see how he treats people. How that he will not be stopped by cultural uh, taboos. He will not be stopped by the things that we would uh, generally be a fearful of, God. But he was fearless to bring hope to those who were hopeless, God. I pray that us as a community and us as Christians can also in the same way be maybe even convicted and inspired to reach out to the other to stop the practices of them and us, but God, that they're your children and you desire that not one of them would perish. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> There's a great kingdom passage. It's in Matthew 10, 16. 
And this passage, if you would, I'd love it to frame the mentality of how we're going to read Luke chapter 5. Sometimes it's good when you're reading the Bible to have this perspective, this, this, this balanced thought. And this is, these are Jesus' words. So they're coming from Matthew. And, but they're, they're, it's good to have this when you read something because we can go all one way or all the other, um, but it brings a balance. And it's Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheeps amongst wolves. So be wise as a serpent and innocent as doves. It's such a great framing for believers. When you're looking at a world that's broken, a world that's, that's, that ha there's evil within the world, and there are people who are operating, it feels like, evil, within evil. So to be wise as serpents and to be gentle as doves is a very difficult balance. I almost feel like that balance looks a lot like, okay, like gritting your teeth, knowing something's off, but knowing that I've got to refrain my judgment right now. I need to be wise in how I'm encountering this person. I did my own little translation of this passage uh, for maybe more relatable to us today, because we're not thinking about wolves. And I don't know, many of us don't know how serpents act, you know, act or We've only released doves at weddings and funerals. And so, but it's really meaning this, is that under the harshest of circumstances, where there's danger around, possibly lurking, not that there's wolves running everywhere, but they're in waiting in some ways. Be sharp as attack. When it comes to knowing the truth, knowing wisdom and discernment be sharp as attack but the last part about being really gentle as doves it's such a beautiful way to look at it is your heart being a heart that sees how jesus saw other people he first looked upon people as human beings as children of god and we would see then the sharp as a serpent Sharp, you know, sharp as attack, like would then arise, and Jesus would handle it in that way. But he saw, looked to see others uh, for who they were, really. You know, there's a time. Think about this: when you went through a crazy period of time in your life, and you look and you go, "Wow, that really wasn't me." Have you ever had that moment in your life? Right? And you look back and you go, that, that just was not me. When I look back at that, it's almost like I'm looking at another person. You could do it with your teenage years, but you can go like, wow, I was really, really crazy. Or, 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 or even just a different person. Now I'm, I, I really feel like I am who I am. I think when we see people, that's who Jesus is directing us how to see them, is for who they really are. This is why... He didn't care what culture said. He didn't care what the rules were, in a sense, when it came to those others. He was someone who saw them for who they were. And Jesus being the head of our religion, wouldn't you say? The head of our faith. The example that we're all to follow. And he says, follow me. Walk in the way that I walked. Well, then we should pay attention to how he treated the other. I titled this message, All Saints, All Souls. And... This is a, 
I, I think our church, I'll be honest with you, is very kind and very loving, very gentle as doves, wise too as serpents. So I am going to say that, that I do see this, but I have to always, and as myself when I read this, the read scripture, I never want to read it from a perspective that isn't me. Because if I read it as in, well, those, all those people need to know it. Like if I came to preach a sermon to you and I said, I need to make sure that Soundhouse knows it because I have perfected this, then you guys would be in trouble. You would walk out feeling like you could never be good enough. We have to read scripture first and foremost for ourselves as our reflection. So when I say this phrase of the sermon message, it, it means for all of us. It's a wake-up call, I think. This is my subtitle. A wake-up call to the Christian mindset. And I think the Christian mindset needs a wake-up call on occasion. The Christian mindset, it needs, it can get off track. And it can begin to, <clears throat> I think, reflect some of the values of, this, uh, of the world that Christ came to save us from. And it can seep its way into, into even just our mindsets. And so when we read Luke chapter 5, it's a wake-up call to the mindset of, what are, we, what are we doing? Are we othering people to the point of where we see them as irredeemable? As so much the outsider? And Jesus calls, I think, to remind us of this. I think I've cited this before in, this, uh, in a message prior, where... Uh, there's a study in the 1970s, and it's just this one of my favorites, because you have this study happening at Yale University, which is this prestigious, especially theologically prestigious school. And in their theological seminary that they had there, this, the, the psychology department asked the head of the theological department if they could do a study on their students. And, and I think that this is not fair to students to do this, but what they did is they coordinated and and they worked it out where they would ask all of their seminary students to write a sermon about the Good Samaritan. And they broke them up into three groups. And this is where I think it's a bit cruel. They broke them up into three groups. They didn't tell them what was happening. And they said, okay, you've got to go right now across campus. And you need to go at these different times and write a sermon about the Good Samaritan. You know the story of the Good Samaritan where... Others had walked by because they had an agenda or beliefs that kept them from the person who was hurting on the side of the road. But this outsider stopped and talked and helped. And so as they're in their three different groups, one group was told that you have plenty of time to write this sermon and come back and deliver it in class. Another group said you have very little time, but there's time. The other group was told there's no time. You're already late. You've got to write the sermon. And as they tracked everybody, they put this actor who was dressed as someone who was hurting in pain and in need and calling out for help. And three quarters of the first group who had time to write the sermon stopped to check to see if the person was okay. The next group that came by, only 30% of the people stopped because they were in a hurry to write the sermon about helping people who were in need and walked right over top of the person who was in need. And then the last group who was already late for the sermon, they, only 10% of that, 90% of them walked over this person to get to write and deliver their sermon about helping those in need. And I think that that's kind of like a, 
shocking thing, the busier we get, the more we have on our agenda. And it gives us a little bit of a heart for those two priests that walk by the guy on the side of the road. But it doesn't excuse anyone from the fact that when there is someone who is an outsider, an other, someone in pain and someone in need, do we see them above our agenda? So there are some days, I don't know if you're like me, there are some days that I just feel like I don't even know how I got to my destination. I got so many things going through my head. I'm so busy. I'm running from here to here to here. The kids kept you all night, and you've got so many things going on. So many things we're juggling. The very last thing I'm going to see is someone going like, hey, I'm in need. I'm like, dude, you're in need. Have you ever been like that? I'm in need. But Jesus is calling us as all saints to be aware of all souls. And to be after those souls, Jesus constantly broke down walls of othering to really see people, to slow down. You know, do, at the end of our life, the Bible says, well done, good and faithful servant, you ran the race. He, the Bible does not say, well done, good and faithful servant, you got a lot done. You made so much happen. Right? You were busy, busy. You are a great multitasker. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's about the moment of taking time to step back and realizing life is busy, but also we're looking for the other. Right? That's what we're called to do. In the beginning of Luke chapter 5, you can go back and read it, Jesus calls his disciples. And he calls mm, pretty salt-of-the-earth guys. Well, you were fishermen. You, you know, it wasn't like you were really poor either. You were like middle class, upper middle class. You, were, you, you did well. It was, the, it was the currency in a way, food-wise, of the entire region. So Peter and the other his brothers and the other fishermen were, were, were good people. They, 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 they went to synagogue and they were good little Jewish boys and they were out fishing and trying to help the community. And so Jesus calls these salt of the earth you know, people that everyone go, hey, that's great. But then at the end of chapter 5 is what we see the agenda of the writer of Luke, which is, yes, he called the salt of the earth, but then he called the filth of the earth in the very same chapter. And I'll say this in my first point. When we look at, when we read Luke chapter 5, we can look at it this way. The kingdom calls to all. There are some of you, you would not want to tell me your story. You might be embarrassed or ashamed. I don't think you should be the testimony of God's glory. But there are some of us who come from places and have been things in this world before we met Jesus that are from shameful places, from filth in a way, filthy places. Places that you go, I cannot believe where I was at. There are people that you know have come from those places, but Christ found them and something changed. And you wouldn't even believe they're the same person. And so Jesus, he calls to all people. He's not to a certain group of people. He's not to those who are qualified. Jesus qualifies the called. I, I would say this is, is, is the thought, and it will be on the screen, is Christians are to lay down their subjective views of worthiness. Your thoughts, your impressions, your experience of what somebody would be, you're, we're called to lay there that down going they're worthy they're not and this is what Luke's doing in this chapter by highlighting these two these two following experiences is the other 
We're called to lay down that subjective view of who is worthy, who is not. Acts chapter 5, if you have your Bibles or your apps, you can have it. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. Verse 27, after this, right, they went and out and saw a tax collector. They're on their way traveling. Named Levi, who is traditionally Matthew, who some would say wrote the book of Matthew. And sitting at a tax booth. So he's a tax collector. His name's Levi, and he's sitting at a tax booth. Now, in our day, we wouldn't know. We're just like, oh, IRS. Listen, no one in here, unless you work for the IRS, loves the IRS. My son just started paying taxes, and he's like, what's this? And I'm like, yeah, that's reality. This is different, though. These tax collectors are not how we see our IRS. These tax collectors were considered to be thugs. They would beat you up and take your money. Typically in the Roman world, when they conquered a region like they did Judea and they did really all of Israel in that region, they would set up these people that would be volunteers from the community. So Levi was someone from the community. He is not a Roman. And he says, I'll tell you what, I'll collect the taxes. I'll pass them along to Herod. And then Herod will take that portion and then pass them to Rome. So I'll collect the taxes. And what Levi had to do was pay the upfront taxes for the entire year. And then he had to go recoup that investment. And so what typically they did is why they were so hated amongst their community, because they betrayed their community. They're working with this empire taking taxes so the empire could become more powerful and subvert them even more. And then on top of that, Levi is then taking a little for himself as well. And so I was looking at these ancient paintings and carvings on walls, and they literally had people strung upside down from their rafters beating them to get the money out of them. It was like a huge extortion racket. They were cruel, cruel people. Typically, they said, if they look back at antiquity, they can say that every tax collector, like Levi, usually collected about 30 to 50% of taxes, and it would just crush someone. Because you, you also paid your temple tax, right? And you also did your offerings as well. People were living on so very little. And so Levi has looked at one of these people who's helping Rome, the oppressor. And he betrayed his own people. And so what happened is he had a toll booth. And so he was one of these guys that would sit on the road. And so let's say this. If you, if you caught a fish in Galilee and it wanted to go to Jerusalem, they had to take the fish, tax it right there. And then they would hit another toll booth person. It would get another tax on the way in the road and another region, another tax. And eventually it got there and it was taxed. And the prices were extraordinarily high. It's why frankincense back in the ancient times was so expensive because by the time it came from where it came in Syria all the way through, it was so expensive and they needed it for temple worship. And so they hated tax collectors. And they were the other. They were the outsider. He's no Peter Fisherman here. He's someone they despise. So you have to get the idea of who he is as a person. But Jesus nonetheless says, follow me. These are the exact same words he says to Peter. Follow me. His word doesn't change. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how low of a standard you may think somebody is. The same call is to the same people, to all of us in this room. Come follow me. 
and Levi, leaving everything, rose and he followed him. Now, if you're picking a team, do you remember like when you had to, I don't know if they do this in school anymore because maybe it's too hurtful, but back in my day when they hurt kids' feelings, <laughs> they, they would line everybody up and say, okay, two captains and you pick the people who you want to be on your kickball team, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Or dodgeball. And they would go through and they would pick people and they pick their friends, but usually the, the captains who everybody was like, oh yeah, they're the best dodgeball player or, or uh, kickball player, they would then go through and then eventually there'd be the last person there. I'm pointing at myself because this has happened to me. I'm a little hurt by it. And it would be like, and then you. So this is a terrible draft pick for Jesus. If you're going to draft, this is not the draft pick that you want. It's a huge risk to stop the movement. You're bringing in the scum of the earth to join your movement. What about these fishermen? They're such good guys. They pay their taxes. They go to temple. They're good people, right? They probably helped mow their neighbor's lawn. Right? They probably gave some fish away to people who were in need. This guy is not the person. But Jesus yet comes to him and says, follow me. You know what this reminds me of, this pick, this draft pick? It reminds me of my friend Tom Brady. By friend, I mean, I wish I was his friend, Tom Brady. Now, Tom Brady, where, where's he at? Tom Brady was picked right here. This Tom Brady when he was drafted. Right? That's not the Tom Brady we know now. Look at his draft pick, 199 in the sixth round. Tom Brady was passed up by six other quarterbacks. One of those quarterbacks now I read about is raising five goats on a farm and doesn't even own a TV, okay? Tom Brady has won more games than collectively all of those quarterbacks drafted before him even played. He was a good draft pick, but nobody thought at the time, they thought, what a waste of talent and time. But he did go to the University of Michigan, so that's probably why. Right, Larry? That's probably why. I look at, I look at you and think, why? He's not a good draft pick. He reminds me of that. And on top of that, Jesus drafts another person. His name is Simon the Zealot. And Simon the Zealot is the exact opposite of Levi. Simon the Zealot is someone who wants to take over the Roman Empire. Someone who is tired of their taxes. Wants to lead a revolt because they're so oppressed. And they're tired of being taken advantage of and crushed. And so Jesus drafts these two people to the same team. Could not be more opposite. It would literally be like in 2024 if Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were on the same ticket. It would be like our friends right here. It would be like if they were on the same ticket to win for the same party. It would be shocking to people. That's a real photo, so I don't even know. You know, Jesus was no respecter of persons he was building a team. He was building a movement. He was correcting the way that the world judges people. He was taking away the othering. Imagine when Simon the Zealot was recruited to join and he's seeing Levi there and he's going, I'm working with the scum of the earth, the person who I want to destroy and who's first on my list that I'll kill if we ever get free. Unbelievable. Who is Jesus? He's so Different. And Christianity, when we wake up call to that, and we look at ourselves in light of that, how, how much othering are we doing in our life? 
How much are we going like, oh, well, they voted that way, therefore they're not a Christian? That's insane to me. Jesus would have never done that. And quite frankly, opposes that. But I think that he, this is a wake-up call to Christianity, especially even today. Let's go on, verse 29. Levi made him a great feast in his house. Now remember, Jesus said that none of the religious people ever even gave him food to eat or a place to sleep. Levi's throwing him a feast. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining, which is at the table with him, which is customarily was a no, 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 no. Not if you wanted to be popular in that region. Laying at a, at a table, reclining with sinners, which the Pharisees called, but Luke calls them others, and tax collectors, the scum of the earth, the traitors to your nation and people, and Jesus is laying there and breaking bread with them, which was the social credit score of that day. And he was instantly going to be canceled, if you will, in his culture because of who he was with. He's gathering with the underworld in that area. And we put ourselves in Jesus' shoes. Would we do that? Where do we hold back? Who do we other in our life that will hold us back from such such a, such a cultural view of someone that we would actually think, ah, yeah, no, they're irredeemable. I wouldn't be called dead around that person. Well, Jesus would, and so we're followers of him. Verse 30, and the Pharisees and the scribes, two very important people of the religious culture, grumbled at his disciples and saying, why do you eat with tax collectors? And they inserted sinners instead of others. So these are the outsiders. Jesus, at this moment, by sitting at this table, was considered someone who would be unclean in a way. He is now associated with the dirty people, the undesirables. And Jesus answered them, those who are well, they have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call the righteous, not, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The, real, the fact is that the religious people had no idea that they were sinners. And this is the problem. And this is why they othered. Because it's their pride. It's the arrogance that we can have or the assurance we give ourselves that help us other the other person. But he is disturbing the status quo. He is destroying categories. He is destroying stereotypes. And he is breaking the norms. That's what Christians are called to do. We're all called to do that. We're called for people to scratch their heads and go, why? We're supposed to do that. That's what the people did to Jesus in his day. They just couldn't figure it out. But they were real bothered by it. <clears throat> Jesus, later in Luke, we'll just bring it into this message because it's very relatable, is uh, he, he teaches some insight into the mentality of these religious people or anyone who would other someone else. And it's a beautiful parable. It's in Luke 18, 9. He said, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Now, that's a key word Luke is highlighting to us. Some who would trust in themselves, that they were righteous, or they were better than, or that they had earned their way, and treated others with contempt, disdain, disgust. 
It says this, two men went up to a temple, this is the parable, to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, like Levi. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. If you ever pray that prayer, you are in trouble. Thank God I'm not like those people. Thank God I know what I know. Extortioners, unjust, this is what he's saying. Adulterers, and even like this tax collector here. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. Uh-oh, here comes the list. I give tithes to all, to all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. He beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. Did you see the difference in humility that Luke is highlighting here and Jesus in this parable? Is the difference in humility for salvation. Is salvation comes when you realize you have nothing to give for salvation. God gives it all. The humility should can, can maintain the walk. So when we see other people, we can never pray this prayer or think to ourselves these thoughts of this Pharisee. We must be like the tax collector. Be merciful on me. I have been a sinner. I am a sinner. Tell, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. But whoever exalts themselves will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What ways do we other people? There's easy ones. Race is a way we other people. Political ideologies, that's real intense. Class or class, socio, uh, our social class. Values, we can say your values are abhorrent, minor, good. Approach to righteousness is another. I'm more righteous. I'm more disciplined in my practices. Therefore, I am better, but that's not the, the call of any Christian. That is not what Jesus ever, ever, ever highlighted and praised. He always praised the one who was humble, and that humble heart can see the other for who they are. But an arrogant, prideful heart will see them as the other. The kingdom calls all. The very last section is a short piece that I'll talk about. There's a few other stories in there. They all work together, but these two are the hot ones I think are worth highlighting today, which is, if you think about the way to read this, and the way a Christian needs to be, the mindset of a Christian is this, this point here, fearless love and compassion. Fearless love and compassion. Christians, I think, are to rush to the front lines of suffering and exile. We're called to rush to the front lines not to hold back, not to pull back and have a, a group while the world wastes away or suffering and need is everywhere and go, well, we're good. We're called to rush to the front lines to the, those who are suffering in ex exile. Luke 5, verse 12. This is the story of a leper. And it says, As when he was in one of the cities, there came a man. Now, Luke, being a doctor, probably puts a bit, little bit more of a definition on this leper. He says he was full of leprosy. 
Now, the leper's lot in that day, which we have heard, we don't talk about lepers outside of church, and we don't talk about tax collectors outside of church, but you need to know contextually what was going on here, why this was such a big deal. To us, we're like, no, it's cool, he saved an IRS guy. I'm sure there's some good ones in there. No, that's not what's happening there. And for a leper, contextually what's happening here is this was the most dangerous person around. This person was a hands-off, get-away-from-them person. They were shamed within their culture. It was almost so scary to them. It was a taboo. It was a danger. It was a, you could probably get it by looking at them. And so most of lepers of that day, what had happened, and the Old Testament talks about it in great detail on how the priests would handle a leper. Now, This may not matter to you, but to them it mattered greatly, especially when we read what happens with Jesus here. If you came in contact with somebody what they thought was leprosy, any skin disease, they would title it leprosy. If you had a rash and something that was happening, you would go to the priest. The priest would say, go in a week quarantine. It doesn't look that bad, and we're going to come back and check on you and make sure you're clean. Now, if you looked bad, and it was like, this has been going on for a while, The the, the priest would say, you're going to take two weeks, you're going to do these cleansing rituals, and you're going to come back, and if you still have it, you are now a leper. You will now leave, your family will drop food off for you, and you will join the other outsiders. You will cover your mouth, your lips, the Bible says, anytime you speak to someone, because they they were scared. And Leprosy is a very destructive and horrible disease, and that Luke says he's full of leprosy probably means he actually had leprosy. And his body is falling apart. His skin is beginning to crumble and die and rot. He is now at a place in a stage that there's no going back. And so we can somewhat relate to how sad this would be for those people. It's like no longer are you a person anymore. You're that thing. I can only slightly relate to this when I got coronavirus. It was like you were the cultural leper of the time. It was like, oh boy, stay away. Nobody get near him. Or if you heard someone had even a cough in, in, in the store, you were like, get away from me, Satan. Like it was insane. And it was like, oh, you have corona. Okay, well, nobody talked to them. Everybody stay away. It was such an intense thing. What we have to compare with coronavirus and our quarantines and how we saw someone, especially in the early days, that's how they saw a leper times a thousand. And that was their lot in life. And so when this leper comes out, which he was not allowed to be anywhere near people, so desperate, he comes out and says, when, Jesus saw, when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will. Meaning, there's probably a chance that you would not want to heal me, but he knew, if you will, I know you can. You can make me clean. And Jesus, and here are where the norms, the, 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 the stereotypes, the othering breaks down because it says Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him. Now at that time, they had no idea how you would get leprosy. They just knew it spread through contact. You had to burn your clothes. In some cases, they had to tear and burn their house down. 
They were scared, and Jesus does the thing no one should ever do. He reaches out and he touches the man, and Luke specifically notes that he did this. He could have said with a word like, Ew, gross, go away, leper, and there goes the disease. But he touches, he humanizes him. He takes away the other. And he says, oh, I will be willing and be clean. Now when the leper is healed, or if the skin disease begins to change, they would go back to the priest. And they would go to the priest, and the priest would examine him. The priest would put them in another two-week quarantine to make sure they would have to wash all of their clothes. They'd have to scrub the entire of their living, their house. They'd have to scrub their entire bodies day after day after day. And then the priest would say, you're good. And they could re-enter into society. Imagine returning home. What if when you got coronavirus, you had to quarantine for 10 years? Now imagine that. They got to come home. It was a big, big deal, but everybody was so scared. You know what this reminds me of a little bit? HIV in the 90s. I'll never forget, I was driving with my dad. I'm a very big basketball fan. I'm driving with my dad in the car. I hear on the radio, Magic Johnson, you can see this is his press conference when he gives his announcement that he is HIV positive. I remember, we didn't know anything about AIDS or HIV. It was very, very new, and I remember thinking, Magic Johnson is going to die. And I was heartbroken. He was one of my favorite players. And when I heard the announcement, I was just shocked. I just thought, how could those people even be in the room with him? Clearly, they probably all have HIV. We didn't know anything. They thought you could spread with just talking or just even touching somebody. It was so scary. But man, oh man, two months later, this is what I think. This... <laughs> This is one of the best moments of the NBA, and I don't know if we've had one since. This is the best moment of the NBA. It's two months later, they have the All-Star game. And Magic Johnson is playing in the All-Star game. And put this next photo up. It, the real hero of the All-Star game was Isaiah Thomas, also played for the Detroit Pistons. Isaiah Thomas is, is, is guarding him and playing against him. Magic Johnson the same. He's hugging him. He's high-fiving him. Magic Johnson was someone who I thought, when I watched that game, I thought, Isaiah Thomas is going to get HIV. And all of the greatest players are going to get HIV and maybe die of AIDS. I didn't know I was a kid. We didn't know. And two months later, they, all of them said, we want you playing in the All-Star game. Now, that was the most important, I think, game in the NBA. Saying, listen, this is a human being. We are not going to other this guy. And he retired after this. And he's still alive, as you know. But that was a significant moment. And I think, in a way, Christians needed to run to pain and run to those who were the other and run to those who were suffering. And it was the NBA All-Star game that brought humanity back to Magic Johnson. Jesus, he never held back, and Christians, we cannot do the same. Let me finish the story. And immediately, the leprosy left him. And he charged him not to tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing. And Moses, as Moses commanded, for proof for them, meaning this, go back, be human again. Go back, see your family. Go back. Be someone. Jesus brought humanity to this person. 
It's not just about salvation. It's about Jesus restoring someone's dignity and humanity. Jesus could have said, just follow me. Don't worry about that. But they had a life that was taken. And he told them him to go back. I would say God's kingdom knows no borders, stigmas, or conditions of exile. It doesn't. We, the, the church, the kingdom, needs to be borderless. And we as ambassadors need to be brave and fearless and full of compassion. Let's pray. My prayer is that us, us as Christians, as a church, that we press in to the idea that all saints, all souls, all saints for all souls. There is no one who is too far gone. There is no one who is too distant. There is no one who is too gross that at least doesn't deserve our prayer to change our hearts so we can see them the way Jesus saw them. They're, they're, the church, my prayer for our church is that we do not other people within this church because of an ideology that they hold or a value they hold or a thing that they do or that we don't look so much that it causes division. This was a massive problem that the early church fought against was othering. But Jesus says, hey, I tell you what, let me just show you an example. I'm going to call two people who literally will fight to the death over their differences. But I'm going to call them to be on my team. And each one of those disciples reached and led communities of faith until they were eventually martyred themselves. But they didn't die for an ideology that they so othered people. They, they, they died for Christ under the banner that brought unity. And the other thing is that Christians are called to be fearless in our love and fearless in our compassion, wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. Jesus modeled it perfectly. And so my encouragement to our church, especially through Luke chapter 5, is it's a wake-up call to the Christian mindset that the world is hurting, people are hurting, there's so much division, there's so much othering happening. There's a lot of reasons to hate other people, but have we found enough reasons to love that person? Jesus seemed to be able to do it. And my push to our church is that we, as a church, break any habits, formations, stereotypes, othering that's happening, and we follow Christ. We are on the same team, under the same banner that brings unity, love, compassion, healing everywhere it goes. We want to be on that team. You want to be well done, good and faithful servant on that team. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are, that as Christ came to represent the very heart of God, that he modeled for us in Luke chapter 5 and beyond, the actual mission of the Messiah, which is to go in all places, all spaces, and, and no one was too far gone for Jesus. It didn't matter what the world thought. It didn't matter what culture thought. It didn't matter what everybody else thought. Jesus did not care about being canceled. God, we thank you that he marched to the beat of the kingdom and led the kingdom movement. God, thank you for that example. And that's your heart. And so as we people who bear the name Christian, we want to follow our leader, Jesus, 
to be those who are all saints for all souls. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you guys stand with me and sing this last song?